Listener Production. Dr. Tara Swart has spent her life decoding the mysteries of the human brain. With an illustrious career spanning the intersections of neuroscience, leadership coaching and personal development, she's become a beacon of insight for countless seekers. As a neuroscientist, her work has reshaped the way we understand our minds. In this fascinating conversation, we explore the practical strategies that can sharpen our thinking, ignite our creative spark and equip us with the tools to bounce back from life's challenges, allowing us to become the architects of our own destiny. So from 25 to retirement age, if you're stimulating your brain with new experiences and learning, then the brain is capable of of changing a lot. And it doesn't really matter what you learn. I mean, in adulthood, the most intense things, and it has to be intense enough to change your brain, Examples are learning a musical instrument or learning a new language. And when you learn anything, it's really good to understand that neuroplasticity is is like going to the gym for your brain. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Through my years of studying and researching the connection between human behaviour, personal growth and transformation, I have discovered the keys to unlocking greatness within others. In this podcast, I share stories and experiences from my own teachings, along with conversations with inspiring guests to help you learn the simple tips, habits, practices and strategies to cultivate an extraordinary existence. Dr. Tara Swart is the author of the books The Source and Neuroscience for Leaders. In its essence, this conversation is about regaining control of the stories we're telling because they are shaping the future we're creating. Remembering our deepest inspiration, healing our pain and apathy and connecting to each other like never before. Tara, you're a neuroscientist and a former psychiatrist and you've worked a lot with corporates people in finance. How did you get into this work? Well, I started off as a medical student. And then in the middle of that, when I got to choose special topics, I chose all the neuroscience topics. And this was decades ago. So before neuroscience was a really cool topic. Um, So I thought I wanted to be a neurologist. But when I returned to medical school, I found psychiatry really fascinating because it was more to do with how you think and how your mood changes and things like that. So then I was a psychiatrist for seven years and two of those years was in Australia. And after a while, I wanted to focus on well-being and things being holistic rather than always focusing on something being wrong. But I didn't know what else I could do because all I'd ever trained to be was a doctor. And then I discovered coaching and that's how I moved into working with people in financial services. It was around the time of the financial crisis. So a lot of people were struggling with their mental health. There was some high profile suicides in the city. People were getting heart attacks just from stress. So as a former psychiatrist, I could build a kind of niche for myself in that area because it's quite hard to, you know, make such a massive change. And then neuroscience became a buzz topic in business and leadership. So I started speaking as well. And it kind of just grew from there. What did you notice when you were dealing with these corporates and especially the ones in finance? 
I mean, the first thing I would say is because in coaching, it tends to be retired former business people or psychologists. But I had a lot of psychology colleagues that said, I wouldn't know how to deal with those people. And one of the first things I learned quite quickly was people are people. It doesn't matter how rich you are or what job you're doing. What goes on mentally, emotionally, maybe even spiritually, it's the human condition. Mm. So, you know, I would just treat everyone as a whole human and, and take it from there. And I think another big thing that I noticed for the clients was a real lack of understanding of the brain-body connection. So, you know, that the things that you were doing, like not sleeping for, you know, enough hours and kind of eating unhealthily and forgetting to drink water and just being kind of at the desk all day and maybe not going to, well, not doing exercise or then like doing really high-intensity exercise after a stressful job and travelling excessively, that how much those things were affecting their mental capabilities and their decision-making and their ability to lead and manage other people. So it took a long time for that to be kind of accepted that how connected the brain and the body are. Stress is something that has been on everyone's radar for years upon years upon years. But what do you find are the reasons behind why stress, knowing the mind-body connection, why it can have such an impact and be detrimental in a lot of cases? Great question. So the way that stress works is that we have a variety of hormones, but mostly cortisol and adrenaline that come from our adrenal glands. So they're in our lower back above our kidneys. So they're in the body. So the stress hormones are produced in the body, not in the brain, but they travel around the blood. And they're part of our 24-hour body clock. So melatonin helps us to fall asleep and cortisol helps us to wake up. So there's a sort of all-day all high of cortisol just before we wake up. And then depending on your age or your gender, there's a normal range where, depending on what's going on, you know, we have a, a very good adaptive stress response, which is if we have a deadline or an interview that we, you know, we get some, some of those hormones to help us really perform. But they were always meant to go back to the lower level. But in the, in the modern day, we're switched on 24-7 with our devices. We receive more information by reading a newspaper from cover to cover today than a person did in their whole lifetime 100 years ago. So, you know, stress has always been there, but it's just really accelerated in the last you know couple of decades, I would say more so. Then obviously, you know, we've had a pandemic and things like that. So there are reasons that people are just more stressed all the time, which means that the levels of those hormones are kind of at the top of the range or even higher than they should ever be more of the time, if not all of the time. And there are receptors in the brain that check levels of hormones and different things in the blood. And if those receptors notice that you've got high levels of cortisol all the time, it thinks that there's an imminent threat to your survival. They'll work out what are the reasons that I could be about to die. And in some ways we default to our evolutionary wiring. And so starvation is one of the things that the brain will think is potentially a threat to your survival. And so for that reason, cortisol helps us to lay down extra fat in our abdominal fat cells. So with these, you know, business people, if they said that they had gained weight, but it was not all over and it was mostly like they, you know, they had to loosen their belt and that they tried to eat less or eat more healthily or exercise more, but it just, they couldn't shift it. 
then I would help them to understand that that's because of the stress hormone. And also in the brain, the brain won't want to give up resources for what it considers unnecessary functions to your survival. Things like regulating your emotions, collaborating, thinking flexibly, thinking outside the box, solving complex problems. So it reroutes the blood supply to just enable you to like do the basics to survive, which obviously isn't ideal if you're, you know, running a big business. It's so interesting that you say that because I remember many years ago, I worked in breakfast radio as a breakfast radio producer. And one thing about that is you have to get up at like 3.30 in the morning and five days a week. And I had two young, very, very young kids at the time. And it was so stressful and the environment was not ideal either. But a lot of the team that I was working with who had never done those hours, which is similar, I mean, not as bad as shift work, but it's still very hard, Mm. would talk about how they would be putting on a lot of weight and they couldn't shift that weight. So that would explain it because there was so much stress on our body because of the hours. And then when you go to sleep, you can't sleep properly because you're nervous about Mm. having to wake up early. And there are just so many factors that are part of that, which is so interesting that we may never have thought about. Well, actually, there's another point there that you kind of reminded me to raise, which is when you do shift work, and I would count waking up at 3.30 because of what we know about how the cells repair and regenerate and the hormone balances happen overnight, which is meant to be in keeping with the light-dark cycle outside. Mm. So female nurses and female air stewardesses, so people who do unusual hours, they have higher rates of certain cancers than other women of the same age. Really? Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of, there's even more to the story of why it's important to sleep for a certain number of hours and, you know, ideally at a certain time of day as well. Well, sleep is one of the most important things. And the more I'm learning about it, the more I realize that, you know, this is the place where your body heals. Like I remember my dad always saying to me, he's a doctor, when you're sick, you need to rest, you need to rest, you know, and like you just, your body needs to rest. And now we know that that is so unbelievably true. I want you to talk to that, but also I've been reading some information recently on melatonin and that it doesn't have these wonder effects that people are talking about, like it's not as good for you. Can you talk to us a bit about all of that? Obviously, we produce melatonin. It's released in the evening around the time it gets dark and it starts to sort of wind you down for the day and get you ready for sleep. And because we always naturally slept with the light-dark cycle, but now we have devices with blue light. And actually, it's, you know, it's not just blue light devices, it's any light, unnatural light prevents the release of melatonin naturally in our brain. And so if people have sleep disturbance or people tend to use it more for jet lag as well, then you can take a tablet that basically puts melatonin into your system. I mean, I think it's a variable one. Some people find it really useful and it is related to human growth factor. So it shouldn't be that bad for you. But I guess the point is that if you're putting something in artificially, why aren't you looking at the reason that you're not producing that hormone, you know, Mm. sufficiently yourself? And, you know, what's the root cause of that? So is it because you do shift work, which you may not be able to change? Is it because you're jet lagged, which then, you know, that could be temporary, that could be okay. But I would say generally that if you're having to use a sleep aid regularly, it would be really important to look at the root cause of why you're not 
naturally able to fall asleep. And there are, you know, various reasons for that physical and mental. Any kind of sleep medication is, isn't a long-term solution. What are the best things to promote sleep? So I always say that your, you know, the best way to promote sleep starts first thing in the morning. So <laughs> sleeping and waking at regular times, so within an hour window, has been shown to be beneficial. We don't particularly know why, but it's not just a case of trying to get eight hours sleep a night. If you do regular hours, it is better for you. Um, caffeine is a big thing. And I know like most Australians are very like, fond of their coffee. So um, I don't really have, have an issue with how much caffeine someone drinks. I have more of an issue with the, the, the last time in the day at which they drink it. So caffeine has a quarter life of 12 hours, which means that 12 hours after your last coffee, a quarter of the caffeine is still circulating the blood that's going around your brain and your body. So that can be an obvious one for disrupting sleep. I mean, I used to say, you, you know, drink caffeine until lunchtime and then stop. But for years now, I haven't had caffeine after 10 a.m. And a, a lot of neuroscientists I know don't drink any caffeine. And then generally, I would say that stress is a, is a big contributor to disrupting sleep. That is a sign that, that you've got high levels of cortisol because cortisol is the wake up hormone rather than the going to sleep hormone. There can be, you know, physical things like if you drank a lot of water, like too close to going to bed, you might, you might need to wake up because you need to use the bathroom. But then if you put all the lights on and kind of, you know, walk around for a few minutes and that could prevent you from, you know, easily falling back asleep. And then there's other factors like having a dark enough room, a, cold, a cool enough room, a quiet enough room, depending on, you know, whether you sleep with a partner or you've got young children. I mean, there's just so many factors. Mm. But ideally, we would take less than an hour to fall asleep and we would sleep for, you know, seven to eight hours um, and wake up feeling refreshed. And so if you're either having difficulty falling asleep or you're waking up during the night, or you're waking up either earlier than you need to, or at the, at the time of your alarm, but you just always feel groggy, then it would be good to look at what the problem might be. And there's so many great HRV, heart rate variability devices now, like bracelets and rings and things that can help you to track that. I find that a lot of people who don't sleep well, they kind of fear tracking it because they think they're going to see how bad their sleep is and and often it's not as bad as people think. So I, I do think those physical ways of measuring it are a really good thing. Absolutely. You mentioned something about, you know, when you wake up in the middle of the night. So say, for example, you might be able to fall asleep all right, but then you wake up in the middle of the night and you start ruminating about something that happened within your day. Why does that happen? If you're tired enough to fall asleep, what's happening to the brain that two hours later, it's like bang, wide awake at whatever hour of the morning it is? Yeah. Um, so stress, again, is the biggest contributor to that, probably. But what usually happens in that scenario is that something you're not aware of, like a streetlight or a noise outside, may have disturbed your sleep in the first place. And then if your sleep was quite light and you woke up, then you know, some people can fall back asleep easily, but some can't, especially if you've got things on your mind. So then once you're awake, then if there are, you know, worries on your mind or stresses about the next day, then if that starts up, then it can be even more difficult to fall asleep. And 
the use of light at that time. So if you if you check your phone to see what the time is, or you put the lights on because now that you're awake, you think you may as well go to the bathroom or whatever. Um, so basically, if we put lights on between 11 p.m. and 4 a.m. regularly, then this actually affects the hormone called dopamine, which is the reward chemical. And over time, if, you, if you're consistently seeing light between those times, it can actually make you feel... So dopamine is also involved in motivation. So it can reduce your motivation and actually make you feel unhappy in, in life, even if n- none of your circumstances have changed. So it just makes you feel like nothing's as rewarding anymore because your dopamine metabolism has been disrupted by that light. That's so interesting. There's a trick maybe that you talked about on another podcast that I listened to that I emailed you about and we had a laugh. And it's something I've been testing out with a lot of the guests who come in and they're sitting in front of me where you talk about when you look at someone with your right eye into their left eye and, you know, it creates this good resonance between the two of you. I reckon it works a treat. (laughs) So, Tara... (laughs) In the last month or so before you came on, as I mentioned, I've been doing that a lot and I've done it also just with people if I've like met them for coffee and, but what I like about it is doing it more with strangers than people I know. Yeah. And when I've done it, especially I've noticed more so like if it's males, they almost give me like this cheeky smile. It's like, (laughs) it's a bizarre thing. And then I do it obviously with females as well. I think it just works so unbelievably well, but please know why this trick is so effective. First of all, females tend to give each other more eye contact than males do to each other or males and females do to each other. And yeah, I did say on that other podcast that it's it's a great trick for dating, but it's a great, you know, it's a good one for like bonding with your family yes. and, and your friends as well. But you're absolutely right. You're more likely to notice a difference with a stranger because we don't tend to give that much eye contact to people that we don't know at first because it could seem a bit threatening. And, you know, it all gets back to evolution. Even if you think about animal behavior, and if you've got dogs or whatever, that the way that they make eye contact or don't is to do with whether they're being submissive or Mm. being, you know, aggressive. So just actually giving any eye contact is potentially bonding. So the bonding hormone oxytocin is released mostly through physical contact. So hugging, hand-holding, kissing, but it's also released with good eye contact. And it really shows that you're paying the person attention. Mm. And so I think when you practice the right eye to left eye, which is your right eye looking into their left eye, so straight across, um, you are putting effort and attention into bonding with that person. So, because I got a lot of questions after that podcast about exactly who's left eye and who's right eye and how you're supposed to do it. (laughs) And at the end of the day, it's a way to train yourself to just be better at giving eye contact. But the evolutionary explanation is that because most people are right-handed and the the strongest bonding related to oxytocin is between a mother and a newborn child or the primary carer and a newborn child. So if you are holding your newborn child, you're more likely to hold them in your left arm so you still have your dominant hand free to do other things. Mm And that means that when you gaze down at your baby, your right eye is looking directly into their left eye. And because we cross hemispheres in terms of control of the body, that means that this emotional resonance loop is going 
from the baby's left eye to their, the emotional centers on the right side of the brain and then back to the mum, and basically like crossing over the hemispheres between the two people. And that's, that's how children bond. That's how they learn to recognize facial expressions and understand what love is. So, and again, you could say, oh, well, my mum was left-handed or I'm left-handed or, you know, so, but your best guess with a, with a stranger is your right eye to their left eye. I want to talk to you about this whole idea of neuroplasticity because it is a word that I think is thrown around a lot at the moment, but more so on the idea of A, what it is, and then with thought patterns, how we can actually use it to be able to train our brain in a certain ways. So, you know, we're not ruminating as much as we may be and how how we know that this neuroplasticity is, it can actually be really empowering for a lot of us if we know how to use our mind properly. Yeah, so neuroplasticity is the ability or or it's the fact that the brain is actually much more flexible and moldable than we realized uh, for a long time and that it can continue to to change and grow throughout our lifetime. So we used to think that by the time you physically stopped growing, like around the age of 18, that your brain physically became fixed and therefore all the things that come from your brain, like your intelligence and your ability to learn and regulate your emotions – that those things were pretty much set by that age. Since we've had sophisticated scanning techniques, what we've seen is that the brain is very actively growing and changing until we're about 25, which you know explains a lot of things about why children or young adults tend to like stay living with the parents or you know financially dependent on the parents for longer than it used to be. You know, you're 18, you finish school, like you go off to work, kind of thing. And we've kind of understood that the brain hasn't really fully matured by the age of 18. And that's why the sort of bond to, you know, to the people that you're, that you're carers can, can remain very strong until about 25. Then people just become more independent. So from 25 to retirement age, if you're stimulating your brain with new experiences and learning, then the brain is capable of, of changing a lot. And it doesn't really matter what you learn. I mean, in adulthood, the most intense things, and it has to be intense enough to change your brain. Um, Examples are learning a musical instrument or learning a new language. Things like crosswords and Sudoku, they're not really enough to change your brain. And also, if you're just doing the same thing every day, then, you know, it's better to mix it up. And when you learn anything, let's say a language, then you don't just get the benefits of learning that language, but you get global benefits in the brain, which basically your executive functions, which are the highest functions of the brain, like the complex problem solving, flexible thinking, overriding our biases, being able to regulate our emotions better. You get benefits in all those areas as well. So, you know, it's, it's really good to understand that neuroplasticity is, it's like going to the gym for your brain. So it's, you know, it's, it's as good as doing physical exercise for yourself in terms of your mental abilities. But it's also important to remember that it's, it can be good and bad. Mm -hmm. So, you know, learning something new and getting those other benefits is great, but let's stick to the, you know, the dating analogies. If you've had a breakup and you're obsessively thinking about that breakup and replaying it and wondering if you could have done something differently or why it happened to you, then you're actually reinforcing the negative ending of a relationship in your brain. And that's more likely to put you off, you know, getting back into dating or making a better you know, choice in terms of relationship patterns. So there's a Buddhist saying, which is replace every negative thought with a positive one. 
And actually modern neuroscience kind of, you know, really backs that up now. So if you have a particular negative thought pattern and you can dig below that and, and ask yourself, and journaling is a great way to hone neuroplasticity, what is it that I believe about myself that makes me keep having that particular thought? And, you know, usually it comes down to something like I'm not worthy or I'm not lovable or, you know, nothing ever works out for me. It's quite a common thought. And below that is usually I don't deserve things like other people do. If you can distill that belief down, then you can actually create a positive affirmation that you can say out loud or in your mind every time you have that negative thought spiral. And the way that neuroplasticity works is neurons that fire together, wire together. So the more you think a particular thing or do a certain activity, that pathway becomes stronger and the brain works in an energy efficient way. So it will constantly choose the path of least resistance. So if you're, you know, if you've really wired in a pathway that online dating always leads to terrible experiences, then it's going to take quite a lot of work for you to overwrite that with a feeling that there's an abundance of, of dating opportunities out there. And the more I take them, the more likely I am to get a good outcome. Because mm. you can't actually undo things in your brain. You have to overwrite a pathway that you don't want with one that you want. And, you know, what I teach people as well is that it takes time. Like you don't just do it like once or three times and think like, okay, now that new pathway will be, <laughs> will be formed You can be changing thoughts, say, from a negative to a positive a hundred times a day. But what I also teach people sometimes is to always have the positive thought that you know you want to go to already. Mm. So it might be something that you really love or something that just brings you joy. So you're not struggling to think about something positive when the negative thing comes on. You can just change. And I mean, I trained my brain to do that years ago and I still have to work on it sometimes. I mean, sometimes, and I don't know where this came from. I have like a little Louise Hay in my left ear saying like, all is well, all is well. And it comes in, I think, when I'm just worried. I just have her little, her little affirmation there and it, it's good. You know, that allows me to feel better. And it, that may come on at times, quite a few times a day, but that's all right. Is that, that's actually really amazing because I agree with you. It could be 100 times a day, but the other thing is it could also take months. You yeah. know, it could take six months, nine months, a year to like really change something that's that deeply emotional and it's physical hard work because you're actually physically changing a pathway because we think of thoughts as like a psychological thing. We don't realize how tangible that is in the brain. So it's exactly like if you were going to the gym and working out with weights that you would need to eat more and rest more. It can be very tiring and it can make you more hungry when that amount of work's going on in your brain. But I love that you intuitively did that because, you know, that's an example of emotional regulation because most people in their 20s, when they start you know, getting anxious about something will really go with that thought and believe that they are their thoughts and this, you know, terrible outcome is there. And it's a real sign of kind of neuronal maturity to be able to say to yourself all is well, even if you don't really feel like that at the time. Yes. Um, so yeah, that's great. I've, I've done the same. And um, even just yesterday, I had an example of, um, I can't remember what it was I thought, but I immediately thought something that was like, you know, the parent soothing the child kind of, yeah. Talk. It's funny, isn't it? Especially if you don't, like I didn't think of like say to yourself all is well when you feel, you know, uncomfortable or frightened or nervous or whatever. It's that just came into my head. It was quite bizarre, but it is so soothing. So perfect. Mm. 
I wanted to ask you, I know that you also, you know, as a psychiatrist and neuroscientist, but you also have a strong belief in spirituality. And I wanted to know how that came to be and how you use that in your work. Yeah, so interestingly, I found out yesterday that that is actually one of the fastest growing categories for podcasts, religion and spirituality. Yeah, so nice. And I think, yeah, yeah, it's it's good. Well, it, it is nice, but I think it's come about because there's a lot of emotional, yeah. mental and spiritual crisis going on. But at least people are are turning to that. And I think that's definitely been heightened since since the pandemic. So for me, I grew up in London, um, but my parents had moved over from India. So they had a lot of spiritual practices in the home. Um, so I was always surrounded by it, which I'm grateful for now. But at the time, I just wanted to be like, you know, all my friends at school whose parents didn't do things like that. And so I felt like I had to keep those things very separate. And then again, you know, when I went to medical school and that's like Western medicine, I didn't feel like those things could go together. It was actually when I was living in Australia, when I was 29, that I got into yoga because one of my friends in Sydney was doing it. And she said, it's my thing. Like, I think you would love it. You know, I did it because it had become more acceptable. So it kind of felt okay then rather than if I was like secretly doing it at home, but it wasn't something that any of my friends did. And then... A few years after that, I moved countries, I got divorced, I changed careers. So it was, you know, a real sort of time of midlife crisis for me. And and I was searching for something to help me to get through it. And being a psychiatrist, I, you know, I was very much into Carl Jung's psychology. So, but then, you know, he's actually very spiritual. So I don't think I really realized that at the time, but it was that and Buddhism that I really like read a lot about. And so that helped me personally. I got into journaling and making vision boards and meditation and things like that. But then it was really when I wrote The Source, um, which came out in 2019. So I was writing it the year before, which is about science and spirituality. And doing the research for that, I learned so much about the cognitive science behind the laws of attraction. But I also thought, okay, now I'm really making a statement out there that because I'm a professor at MIT and... I, you know, my whole business is built on me being a scientist. So I'm taking a risk. But after the book came out, the response to it was just so amazing. It really kind of reinforced for me that this is a, you know, a good place to be like at the intersection of science and spirituality and that they can coexist. And I didn't have to keep them separately, personally or professionally. And I remember the first time I was going to give a talk at a bank and I just looked at some research on mindfulness meditation in the US Marines. And I thought right at the end, I'll just do five minutes on this research about how important meditation is. But I thought I might get the feedback that that's like not appropriate for this kind of scenario. And again, people came up to me and said, oh, that was the most interesting part. Like, you know, I, I need to try meditation. So it's always been good feedback that's helped me to kind of, you know, speak more and write more about things like that. And, and like you said, you know, there seems to be such a desire for it now that I just feel very grateful that I had started the research and it's kind of all coming together. I'd love to hear 
the science behind, because I know it's there, but behind the law of attraction and also manifestation, because in manifestation, we talk a lot about quantum physics and, you know, especially if we're manifesting from the quantum and pulling it to us. But I'd love you to go into a bit more depth about that. Yeah, see, I, I always struggled with that because two things. One is it felt like there was a power that was external to you. And so it kind of troubled me, like how much influence can you actually have over that? Whereas if it's your own brain and your own thinking patterns, there's a lot that you can do, you know, there to, to change that. And, you know, if it was about you empowering yourself, and that's the reason that I stopped calling them vision boards and started calling them action boards was because I didn't really like the concept that you could just fantasize about an ideal life, but not do anything to try and make it come true. Mm. So there's both the part of creating the desired goal, but then absolutely being responsible for noticing and grasping opportunities to bring those things into your life. And also just really, if you break down what manifestation is, it is the process of neuroplasticity and how you set a goal and achieve it. And the way that works in the brain is firstly through raised awareness. So you have to realize that you know, life's maybe not going the way that you want it. So maybe you're not in the relationship that you want or you're not in the job that you want and that you have a clear idea of what you do want. And then focused attention involves things like looking at your action board, you know, noticing a potential dating opportunity or a job opportunity. And then deliberate practice is doing all of the things that you need to do to set yourself up for the best chance of success. And then the final part is, you know, holding yourself accountable to reach that goal. So, you know, if you think, if some people think manifestation is very woo-woo, but if you think about it like that, like I set a goal and I do the work in my brain and in the outside world to make that goal come true, then you can't really argue that that exists. And if you also back that up with, I, you know, I changed the beliefs that I have about myself. I changed my negative thought patterns. I take actions that I wouldn't have taken before. Then, you know, it all comes together as a really good package. It's such a wonderful thing, I think. It's, it's nice to have the mixture of both of them. I've heard you talk about the importance of our tribe and, you know, finding a tribe that is not only going to make us feel good, but is also going to be beneficial both for you and for the people around you. Mm. But I'd love you to talk about the good old saying, birds of a feather flock together and the research on that. Yeah. So there is a thing called social contagion, which is kind of how we like catch each other's habits. And so you do naturally see that like-minded people kind of, you know, tend to spend more time together. And psychologically speaking, you will meet and spend time with people who are at the similar level of psychological wounding or healing as you. And you will also move away from people when that grows apart. So let's say, you know, that you started off your school, you know, high school friends or something, and one person becomes very much into spirituality, practices yoga, looks for opportunities for self-development, creates an action board, you know, works really steadily towards it. And somebody else is partying a lot and, you know, doesn't think that you can learn to regulate your emotions. And so just like goes with how they feel. And, you know, you can see how people like that could drift apart. Mm. So it's two things that you're likely to attract people who are at a similar 
psychological evolutionary level to you, but also that the small group of people that you spend the most time with, their habits do influence you. The two major examples of this are weight gain and divorce. And the reasons that those things are contagious, if you like, is that they become socially acceptable. So it's very hard to be the first person in a group to get divorced or the only person in a group to be overweight. But once you know that is seen around you, it changes your perception of what's normalized and acceptable. So that, that's how it has the influence. It's interesting you say that because I was recently overseas and the hotel that we were staying at, there were like different groups of, of people who had come together. And I noticed how in some of these groups, there was a high level of people who had obvious plastic surgery. And mm-hmm. I thought like, I can understand why that's contagious because, mm. you know, you walk away and you would probably be like, if that was your norm every day to see people that had been enhanced in certain areas mm-hmm. um, constantly, then maybe you would feel lack or you would feel that you wanted to do the same thing. Absolutely. And yeah, I, I also experienced that overseas somewhere <laughs> recently, just seeing that, you know, that's just, it's, it's, it's much more common yeah. than it is, you know, for, for example, in London, although, you know, it's relative, isn't it, in different places. But yeah. I also had a similar experience last night because I went to an art gallery opening and I was just so interested to see what everyone was wearing because it was like, wow, this is a really cool alternative arty crowd. And I just don't dress like that or usually see many people that do. So it was just so interesting to be in a, you know, kind of with a different group of people to what I, you know, normally hang around with. It's funny, I went to like the one Tony Robbins event I went to many years ago. He did mention that he, from a young age, always made sure that he hung around people that were smarter than him Mm. because it would really push him and he does it a lot now. He's like, I love my friends to be doing more than me, to be smarter than me because then it, I mean, no, Tony Robbins has done so much, but it, you know, invigorates him and makes him go like, wow, I want to be doing that. Or the whole idea that, you know, the path is being illuminated. Mm. So you can see, oh, wow, those are the steps that I could take to do something similar. Yeah, I think it, it basically it challenges your potential. And we all have so much more potential in our brains than we're probably using day to day just because, you know, you may not have the time to really give focus to that. But I feel the same with my coaching clients. So when I have someone that's like super smart and thinks really quickly and challenges me, I know that I step up and I become, you know, better. Um, and if I, if I'm interacting with somebody that it's just a very easy, maybe, you know, lovely, but easy conversation, then I'm not going to be like, you know, super like on the edge of my intellect, like challenging them necessarily. Yeah. You mentioned exercise before and how if you've got high levels of cortisol or maybe just normally, then doing high intensity exercise is not ideal. So why is that? And then also what is good to do from an exercise perspective? So high intensity exercise can actually spike your cortisol. Remember what I said about, you know, we have a good adaptive stress response, which is like if we've got you know, a deadline, then we release some cortisol and adrenaline to help us to achieve that. But when we do like very high intensity exercise, it actually induces the release of cortisol in the system. In terms of particularly, you know, now how stressful life is, and if you are in a very, you know, demanding job and maybe traveling a lot, that kind of exercise is probably actually contributing to things becoming worse, even though it may look like, you know, you're more toned or more muscular or whatever. 
So various forms of exercise are good, but just a gentler version of, of each. So, you know, maybe instead of going like running at the hardest you know, level that you can, going for a jog or a long walk instead. Although, uh, you know, a moderate amount of aerobic exercise does actually help to release cortisol through our sweat. So that's, that's a good thing to do. Most of the research on the brain does focus around aerobic exercise because oxygenation of the brain is really important. But other types of exercise like weight-bearing exercise have benefits in different parts of the brain and things like where you have hand-eye coordination or it's like a social you know, sport that you do with someone else, they have other benefits as well. So all different types of exercise and enough rest are good for your brain, but it's just that you don't have to do it to the level of intensity that I think you know, for a time we all thought was the best thing to do. There's a word that's used a lot, which is intuition and the whole idea that you're intuitive or all that kind of language. Intuition, I mean, for me, I think has been a really, from an emotional intelligence perspective, has gained me so much in my life. But I want to know, you know, especially as a neuroscientist, what your thoughts are around intuition. Well, I'm the same as you. It's, it's, you know, it's definitely guided me in my life and I've learned over time to trust it more and more. And, and for me, journaling was a great way to really, you know, every time I made a big decision to think, what do I feel like logically? What do I feel intuitively? And I didn't always go with my intuition when I was younger, but what I definitely learned over time was that the intuition was usually correct, whether I went with it or not. And the more I started to trust it, the more confident I would feel about going with my intuition. So intuition is, again, something that was thought of as not very tangible. And, you know, if it's not, if it's not real and like based on hard facts, then why should you trust it kind of thing, you know, and particularly in business. And so we have what's called a working memory that's held kind of in the outer cortex of our brain. So it's front of mind. It's, it's available there for the things that we need to do every day. Now, obviously, you can't remember everything that you've experienced in your whole life, but you do pick up wisdom from life lessons just as much as you pick up knowledge from, you know, logical learning. And so the more that something's repeated in your life or the more that it's got emotional intensity associated with it and the longer time ago that it was, um, that information gets pushed deeper into the brain. So your limbic system, which is the emotional system, that's the size of your clenched fist, and it's deep inside the brain with the cortex around it. And then, you know, again, with like time and repetition, information can get pushed into the neurons in your brainstem, your spinal cord, and your gut neurons. And that's why intuition is sometimes also called gut instinct. So it's basically the things that you've experienced in your life that you don't necessarily consciously remember, but have formed patterns that give you information about decision-making. I wonder, Tara, what is the best advice that you have ever been given? Oh, wow. I've been given a few specific ones about writing because that's something I've kind of like found quite challenging in the past. But I think I'm going to have to go for a few. It's very hard to choose one. I mean, I think, you know, things like, you know, that very close friends or mentors of mine have said, like, be yourself, follow your heart. And one that I think was Steve Jobs was if you follow your passion, you will be successful. Now, I remember reading that and thinking, well, and I, I'm saying this because I know that people will think that too, I think, that is that, well, it's okay to say that when you're Steve Jobs and you're already so successful. Mm. You know, not everybody has the luxury of being able to follow their passion. 
But I've really, really learned that that's true. Um, you know, I took a huge risk giving up being a doctor with a stable salary to start up something that I had, you know, no experience or background in and, you know, having to compete with people who'd been in business for years and decades. And there were, you know, times that it was really hard, but I was so passionate about it. I, I had no option, but that, you know, I had to make it succeed that I can really like see how that panned out. And, you know, even now with my podcast, you know, it's a passion project. I wanted to do it, but I didn't necessarily know if, or, you know, how successful it would become. To me, it's another example because especially with this one for season one, I kind of did everything that I thought would make a podcast as successful as it could be. But for season two, I really wanted to focus on ancient wisdom and how that could be applied to modern, you know, mental, emotional and spiritual struggles. And it was quite hard to find guests because it's quite esoteric topics. And I just, you know, really went with my heart and found people that I liked or I came across like in a serendipitous way and have had incredible conversations with them. And the feedback that I've had from people, it could, you know, I mean, it can make you cry. It's so amazing. So it just shows that when I've gone for a topic that I'm deeply passionate about, whether I thought it would be popular or not, it's actually been more successful than when I tried to, you know, do everything right. I agree with that. I mean, I, I was the same. I gave up producing, you know, Australia's biggest podcast with two huge celebrities to follow my dream of doing this podcast. Mm. And it's worked wonders and expanded my life, you know, into other areas as well. And yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. Amazing. I wonder, Tara, what is something that you wish for yourself? So I'm on a, a journey at the moment, which has probably been going on since I was about 15 when I was told at school that I wasn't creative because I wasn't good at art. And it's actually making me quite emotional even thinking about that again. So for at least 20 years, I completely believed that I wasn't creative. I actually used to say to some of my friends, it's so strange, like how all of our group of friends are creative and I'm the only one that's not. And, you know, one of them said, but you are. But I thought, well, no, I'm not. You know, I just, you know, some people would say, you know, you've written books, you've started up a business but that's not enough proof for the 15 year old me that was told that, that, you know, believed it. So I have also now co-written a song and I think the podcast is definitely like more creative, but I wish for myself to at some point genuinely feel that I am truly a creative person. Isn't it interesting how one person's comments can make such a, or have such an effect? Mm. I didn't also think I was a very creative person, not because anyone said that to me, just also I thought, oh, I'm not good at drawing and art and I don't know, the bits and pieces that we think about when we think that you're creative. But then when I started in this work, I realised that I am creative. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, but also a good reminder that we should be very careful about the words we say to others because they can affect people more than what we think. Especially children, obviously, because their brains are very impressionable. And when it's you know, you're one of your caregivers or a teacher or somebody that you really look up to, then the effect is like is magnified even more. And there's a whole generation of people where, you know, that belief was that drawing and painting, that's what meant, you know, being creative, who, who don't think they are. And, you know, there's, there's research on it at Stanford University, but in my class at MIT, which tends to be a lot of, you know, logical, rational thinkers who also don't believe they're creative. When I say to them, 
you know, what does creativity mean? It means seeing patterns where they're not obvious to everyone else. It means connecting up the dots and, you know, in a way that is not is kind of like different thinking. Then I hear people say, oh, well, if that that's what it is, then yeah, I am creative. And so, yeah, I think I'm on a bit of a mission to to help people feel that, you know, going in, you know, indulging in creative activities, whether it's just watching them or, or actually doing them, even if you're not good at it, is actually very beneficial for your brain. And going on a spiritual path, which there's emerging there because, you know, being in nature to me is both spiritual and, and, you know, beholding beauty. Those things are really important for our brains and our souls. So yeah, I think I wish that for me, but I also wish it for all of our listeners. What's the most important thing we can do for our brain, just our brain health, especially like with Alzheimer's and things like that? What are things that we can do to ward them off or to just ensure that our brain stays healthy? The pillars, the physical pillars, the sleep, diet, hydration, oxygenation and stress management, so mindfulness activities. I've got to say those ones. But um, the evidence now around spending time in nature, both for your mental health, your physical health and your longevity is, is really huge learning. So actually if, if you were, you know, if you lived to a certain age and you were going to get a degenerative brain disease at some point, then actually your level of education means that that is put off for a little bit longer compared to somebody with the same profile as you, but who hasn't done as much higher education. So obviously if, you know, that's in the past and you can't change that, what you can do is take on new learning throughout your life. So you know, choose to get an app and learn a language or a musical instrument or choose to travel to really unusual places and meet different people and try different foods. So yeah, lifelong learning is the one that you can really take, take on as, you know, personal challenge. What is a life of greatness to you? I really think neuroplasticity to me gives everybody the potential to live their greatest life. The fact that you have so much untapped potential in your brain. So kind of like wrapping up with the last few things that we said, if there's something that you always wanted to do, but you didn't believe that you could, or you didn't believe that you deserved it, then just try. To me, that, that taking that first step and seeing what happens, that, that's a life of greatness. Tara, thank you so much for the wonderful conversation today. You're an absolute wealth of knowledge. <laughs> thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Your Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my manifestation course and meditations, head to the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com or this week's episode show notes to find a link. If you love what you heard, we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. Listener.